Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. This week it's a Christmas special so I'm talking to Lizzie Huxley-Jones about their festive rom-com Make You Mine This Christmas. Lizzie had such an interesting route into publishing that I was desperate to get them on the podcast. Lizzie is an autistic author and editor based in London. They also work with writers and publishers as an editorial consultant and in previous careers, they've been a research diver, a children's bookseller, and digital communications specialist. In this episode, we discuss character creation with mood boards and playlists, writing a disabled love interest, and what write for hire is, and how this gave Lizzie their route into publishing. But before we hear that, here's Lizzie with an excerpt from Make You Mine This Christmas. Hi there, I'm Lizzie Huxley-Jones, the author of Make You Mind This Christmas. I'm going to read a little bit for you and I'm going to take you to chapter four where Hav has just knocked over a table of books and is talking to a woman in the bookshop. Thanks for helping me and I promise that when I do plan to engage in petty crime, I'll be sure to call on you. In reply, the woman winks. She fucking winks. A natural, no squinting wink have melts. All the air has been sucked out of the room, and only they exist. What do you say to someone who has just winked at you? But she said she'd call on her. Now would be the right time to ask for her number, but the words dry in Hav's mouth. This woman looks so beautiful, so put together. What does Hav have to offer but a gigantic backpack and the occasional awkward comeback? The woman picks up a book off the shelf and reads the back, and Hav feels a sense of loss, like she missed the moment to keep talking to her. What would it feel like to be touched by her, for this woman to appraise her, stroke her, whisper things against her ear? What would it be like to kiss those nearly smirking lips, to bite softly on the lower one? Snap out of it, she thinks, taking a deep breath. Nestled on the floor, she spies another lost book and reaches down to pick it up. The cover draws her in, a girl wearing an orange beret, staring into the distance, one arm leaning against a blank canvas, the other slung in the pocket of her grey coat. There's something so lovely about her that Hav can't stop staring at. It's Carol, by Patricia Highsmith, apparently. In all the chaos, she must have knocked it off the table over. A display of the best of LGBTQ plus fiction. 
Even here, most books are new to her. She went through a phase at university of reading whatever she could get her hands on, usually battered copies found in charity shops, so there are lots of gaps in her knowledge. It's been one of those things that she's promised herself she'll spend time indulging in for, well, most of the last few years. Now that's a book. The stranger's attention is back on her, and the two women hold eye contact for a beat. Unsure of what to do, Hav holds up the book. How good's my taste? That depends, she says, looking up with heavy-lidded eyes. Have gulps. Holy shit. The stranger reaches forward, hooking her walking stick over one forearm, and takes the book from Hav's hands. Have you read this before? She turns it over in her hands, smiling at it like an old friend. No. Oh, oh wait, didn't they make a film of this? I swear everyone is always telling me to watch it. You should read it. She taps her red manicured nails on the cover. Yeah? Yeah. Really, it's a romance, but it's written like a thriller. There's a bit of homophobia, a bit of a shit husband, the usuals, but there is a happily ever after for the lesbians, probably the first in literature, which is nice. Hav takes the book back into her clammy hands, gripping onto it for dear life. Oh, she says, all the air going from her throat. That makes a change. She's always struggled with this part, making it clear you're another queer woman. Most of the time she feels like an alien speaking human, and this feels like an expert level of communication that she's never sure she's managing. If only there was a hand signal or that everyone still spoke Polari, it would be really useful if she had one of those enamel flag pins on her enormous rucksack, though pointing at it would likely be as awkward as what she's trying to do now. Is it set at Christmas? A little bit, actually. That's how they meet, in a shop. Have licks her bottom lip and bites down on it. The film is also very good, worth watching just for Kate Blanchett's wardrobe alone, and there's a scene where she's sitting on the floor and stands up so elegantly without using her hands. You'll get what I mean when you see it, it's almost erotic. Half feels like she's going to pass out. Message received, apparently. She can't quite believe that she's managing it. Remember how to flirt, remember how to flirt, you absolute disaster, yells Ambrose's voice in her head. Ask her to watch it with you. Get her number! I can do this, she thinks. Hi Lizzie, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut-ish novel, Making Mine This Christmas. Thanks for having me. I love the ish. It is very yeah. ish. We will we will dive into that later because you had a very, you just described to me as wibbly wobbly way <laughs> into publishing and I think that's the perfect way of describing it. Um, I think, I mean, this is your, this is your debut novel. You have written um, other things but we will we will go into that um and you've got such an interesting journey into publishing that it's it's going to be very interesting for people to hear kind of an alternative route into writing um, mm-hmm. and publishing but we're here to talk about your amazing Christmas rom-com so can you start by telling us what Make You Mind This Christmas is all about So Make Your Mind This Christmas is a queer Christmas rom-com that follows a girl called Hav who is just kind of a bit of a mess. (laughs) She has nothing better to do. She's Her life is falling apart. Uh, She's dragged to a Christmas party. She ends up in banter with this kind of awkward tall man and they see some mistletoe that's all burned up and so they decide to have a kiss under it as a kind of offering you know, when I read, say my plots out loud, sometimes I'm like, mm, yes, this is very silly. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, we'll, we'll give this mistletoe an offering. Uh, they kiss. It's the worst, most awkward kiss she's ever had. But they're overseen by 
his ex-girlfriend, Laurel. And due to a series of mishaps, the next morning, everyone where Christopher is from thinks that Hav is his new girlfriend and his mother insists that he bring her for Christmas. And because Hav has nothing better to do, she's like, sure, I'll fake date you for Christmas. But on the way down, she walks into a bookshop in the train station and sees this woman and is absolutely captivated by her and they have this gorgeous little meet cute uh but the woman leaves and she's like ah damn well i better get my head in the game on this fake dating they arrive at christopher's family home only for the bookshop girl to walk in because she is his sister and then chaos ensues (laughs) it's a it's a heartwarming book about trying not to snog your fake boyfriend's sister you know the the true meaning of christmas yeah honestly I mean there's so there's so many wonderful things about this book and it's like there are so many kind of tropes but they're not you know how sometimes you see kind of people's graphics for their novels and it's like fake dating only one bed whatever whatever the tropes are but yours are done in the most kind of tongue-in-cheek like (laughs) humorous way that you're not you don't feel they're forced you're just like along for the ride you're having fun and it's really cute and it's really funny um very <laughs> sexy what made you want to write a Christmas rom-com and then what was the kind of inspiration behind this story so I love Christmas romances and I love romance and when I signed with my agent I signed for children's fantasy which is very different from <laughs> Christmas rom-coms um but I said to her that you know I was working on some romance and like kind of teaching myself to write romance and she met she and I met with an editor who is the wonderful B. Fitzgerald, who has her own book out now, Girl Goddess Queen. Um, and I was like, I want to write a queer Christmas rom-com. And she was like, I want you to write a queer Christmas rom-com. And we had a good discussion about the kind of books that we felt were missing in that space. Because I read a lot of Christmas rom-coms uh that previous winter just by total chance and it is a very or it was it was a very heterosexual space and a very able-bodied space and I feel like when disabled people get to be in it it's a kind of weird tiny Tim situation even in a Christmas romance and I was like oh that's not really my vibe um and in the end we came like we were thinking and I was thinking and I came up with a proposal that ended up being Make You Mind This Christmas, the idea of fake dating, but you fall for the sister. And funnily enough, it's a trope that exists in two other sapphic Christmas books. There's Kiss of Once For Me by Alison Cochran, which came out last year, and The Christmas Swap by Talia Samuels, which is out in ebook, but already, and it's out in paperback, I think next week, and audio too. Um, that one's a British one. So it's like we all had this wonderful moment of kismet where we were all like, what if fake dating, but like turned on its head? Because um, in Make You Mind This Christmas, it the relationship between Hav and Christopher really becomes like a close friendship, really like finding your best pal soulmate. Um, so it's kind of a love story between them as well but a different kind but yeah so that's kind of how it came about it um just like coming up with different ideas thinking about what was missing in the market at the time this must have been 
2021 because it came out in ebook and audio last year and in a special edition hardback and then it's just out in paperback this year in English and German I have to try and remember all this (laughs) my brain is so full with dates (laughs) Uh, your German cover I love I think it's gorgeous but I mean I've just seen your new um, paperback and ebook and I love the new cover as well um, it's so good <laughs> and but yeah so that's so interesting so you I guess let's say the traditional normal regular way of of getting a book deal would be having written the book then your agent goes out and sells the book but you met with an editor and through your agent and just sort of discussed what you kind of wanted to write and what they wanted as a as a format and then you came up with the idea and am I right in thinking you wrote a section of a kind of uh, an extract I guess of the book and presented that almost like as a proposal is that how it happened? Yeah I was supposed to only write the first like 5,000 words but I ended up writing the first four chapters so essentially how the fake dating happens how she agrees it and when she meets Kit because I was like they kind of have to see the whole setup and it helped me like think about the book as a whole um so yeah, I, I sold it off proposal and also I had a full outline of, I think it must have been about four or five pages. When I do an outline, it's like literally a synopsis of everything that's going to happen in the plot um, and also who the characters are. So some things about them like their vibes, <laughs> like what they look like, like what their character arc is. And I always put in things like um, comp for like tone like things I'm pulling from like this is very much like sprinkles of the happiest season but also lots of other uh heterosexual Christmas films that I love like the holiday and just like things that make you feel cozy so that kind of document along with 15,000 words which as I said was about three times as much as they actually asked for before <laughs> unfortunately I'm a huge uh teacher pleaser <laughs> so I always I'm like no no here's here's all my work and here's all everything that I will do to it yeah. um yeah, wrapped up in a bow and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I I can't remember if I sent them like my mood boards because I make like mood boards and playlists and uh, stuff yeah I know I... you're big on playlists and I also know <laughs> that um Kit is slightly based on Aubrey Plaza's character in The Happiest Season am I correct yeah so like that was really like a starting place for me I love the happiest season and I know a lot of people don't love it and I understand people's critiques of it I think it has had a hard time being like the first one the first major queer Christmas movie um because when you're the first you hang everyone's hopes hung on you and you will never fulfill that um but I actually love it although I do maintain she uh Kristen Stewart should have ended up with Auru Plaza and so (laughs) I kind of wanted to think of a a British version of that and um instead of it being about um you going with your girlfriend and being closeted and pretending to be their friend like what other kinds of relationships there are because when you kind of look at the book there's a lot of similarities like the very waspy parents and things like that so it was definitely like a a huge inspiration for this um but I would say like a starting point like the tone is yeah quite different I'd it's, say it, it's, a, it's a lot more fun it's your your book is a lot more fun and it's a lot kind of if you're looking for a book that literally has like every Christmas food you can think of 
<laughs> if you want to be hungry, I like reading this book. And also any kind of Christmassy thing you can think of, like, I don't know, events that happen just around Christmas and, you know, crackling fires. And it's, if you're feeling, one, I don't know how, whether people feel like this, but sometimes I get to December and I'm like, oh, I'm not really feeling very Christmassy this year read this book and it will I read this book in October I think no I'm going to August actually which was kind of the wrong time to read it but I was so desperate to read it I had to read it um and then I just gave it to everyone I was like read this read this book it's Christmassy it's perfect it's brilliant I want to talk to you about the tropes though because we touched on that briefly mm. but how did you decide like what um did you just kind of pick your favorite tropes like I know there's like hundreds and also it's kind of like I said before sometimes you do get the feeling that sometimes people will shoehorn them a little bit into their plots but I didn't feel like that with yours I felt like it was just done in a fun way in a kind of cheeky way um <laughs> how did you decide like what tropes you wanted to include well to start with um so how it worked with this like editor situation we kind of discussed a couple of different ideas and one of them was fake dating because we both really like fake dating in fact these uh, book is a YA retelling of Hades and Persephone where they fake date. It's so it's so good. Everyone should go read it. Um, and we were just like, well, what what would we do that's fake dating but felt different? And that's kind of how it it twisted. There are some other tropes in there that are also twisted because technically there is only one bed because Hav and Christopher have to sleep in the same bed to keep up the ruse that they are together, but she's sharing it with the wrong person so it's like a different kind of comedy um so the tropes that are in there tend to be like flipped because it's like the the direction of romance is actually someone else and it's like well what because there's there are other i'm like trying to remember which ones would be spoilers (laughs) there are some other ones like later in the book that come up but again it's like the with tropes usually it's about the love interests like how does that thing affect their love when really it's like how does that thing affect her and Christopher's friendship and also the romance with Kit that she's desperately trying to ignore because have spends a lot of this book in denial about pretty much everything she's the person who just has not got a great handle on herself (laughs) and life um and so it's like everything that happens to them that you would normally expect in a traditional trope happens a little bit wonkily and that's why it's quite fun to write because it was like okay well if I did this what would then happen Mm. um but yeah uh, I, I love tropes I'm I must admit I'm quite often a not a trope first writer but I do have if I'm coming up with proposals because I, I sold my next queer Christmas rom-com on proposal along with a couple of other ideas to be like which, which of these would you like I sent them out and then they picked the one that's coming next year which is a sequel to this book um which I will announce when there is a title. I've not come up with a title yet. <laughs> my, my finger is hovering over the pre-order button. As <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not, not pre-orderable yet, but I, I'm on it. I'm on it. Um, but one of the things I wanted to do was think about what kinds of tropes there were that I hadn't looked at yet or that I would have fun telling um I really so for instance I really like reading enemies to lovers but I'm not sure enemies to lovers is doable in like contemporary literature because you have to be like you have to be like really morally 
opposed and I don't know I'm not gonna write a Tory <laughs> lefty romance and <laughs> I'm not humanizing Tories or DJs or you know um and so trying to think about what I also would be good at writing and what would be fun so I do sometimes come from a trope first point of view but I try and also think about okay but if I do that how is it going to be different what is the twist on this what is different about this and sometimes it's not different like I think the sequel uh I can't talk very much about it I don't think <laughs> no one's told me I can't but uh, also no one's told me I can and there's no blubs anywhere but that's a very straight up um they don't like each other and they're trapped together to lovers um so I just like making people trapped with each other I've just realized <laughs> forced proximity seems to be my trope in all my romances so if you like if you like reading books where people literally can't escape each other well <laughs> one out now and two more next year you'll be very pleased <laughs> I love you to talk a little bit more about the representation in this novel because we've briefly touched on it as, as one of the things very lacking in rom-com and, and Christmas rom-com um, literature and I know obviously that was one thing that you and B were both very, very passionate about in terms of queer rep and disability rep. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the ways you explored it in the novel? Yeah so um, it has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome which is a disorder I have which means that the collagen in your body so the collagen is what people are always trying to put in their faces to make their cheeks nice and plump um mine is like chewed up and spit out chewing gum <laughs> when it's supposed to be like nice and bouncy mine is just rubbish and because that is present in every single tissue in my body it causes lots of weird problems um and I thought that it would be quite nice to give that to her because um I think there's a persistence within romance that um, the object of affection cannot be a disabled person. I think a lot about um, that Jojo Moyes novel that came out. I never read it. Um, Me Before You, is that what yeah. it's called? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot about the ending of that novel. For those who haven't read it, it does not end very well at all for anyone involved. Um, and I think that that's really sad. I think that romance, like we deserve romance. I've very luckily been with my partner 10 years and me being a disabled person has always been part of our relationship that, and him being my carer, uh, from day one. And that's not ever been, um, something we had to solve or like work through. And, you know, he's not, uh, an angel for looking after me and I'm not a burden for being <laughs> alive <laughs> you know and so I kind of wanted to make that in a romance book and I must say I was really inspired by um, Talia Hibbert's The Brown Sisters series where um, the first book Chloe Brown Chloe has it's on page fibromyalgia but it reads very very like Ella's Dunlos syndrome because she's always twisting joints and so I really wanted to do a queer version of that because so many disabled people I know are queer and I it felt like a a gap in queer literature 
in general as well as in uh um as well as in christmas romance literature um but also it's not just one of them who's disabled um partly because and i didn't intend to do this but as i was writing it i was like well why is have so kind of all over the place why does she not have a like a center she doesn't trust any of her decisions and she's bad at making decisions because she doesn't actually know who she is or what is a good decision for her and I realized that what I'd unintentionally done was pulling from a time when life was really chaotic for me in my early 20s and that was when I was trying to be an adult but didn't know I was autistic and so I was just constantly overwhelmed and really unsure why I found things so much harder than everyone else. And it's because I was pretending to be neurotypical and trying to keep up with everyone when really I needed to carve out my own future for me. And I realized that that's what I'd done with Have and that's who she was and that's what she was going through. And so there's an author's note at the back that says, you know, have is autistic it doesn't say it on the page because she wouldn't know and I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with um autism but um up until well probably the 2010s let's be real people didn't think that autistic women really existed and so if you were an autistic woman who got a diagnosis that was um quite rare because it was seen as a disorder quote-unquote disorder it was seen as a neurodiversity that only affected uh it was like four to one men to women um whereas now they're like oh it's actually much closer than that so there's like a real historical underdiagnosis of women that persists today and if you are um anything other than a white woman if you take any extra marginalization step away from white and heterosexual um it gets harder so like black women it's much much harder to get diagnosed than white women because all our understanding of autism is also based on white boys so any any steps away from whiteness or maleness or a very typical classic presentation it, it makes it harder for you to get diagnosed because people are still working off that original idea and so that's kind of where these two characters came from like Kit was a very intentional choice from the beginning because I was just like oh wouldn't it be so fun to have this hot girl with walking stick walking through a bookshop and that be like someone being like oh my god I have the hots for this woman <laughs> and whereas have it was very much like oh I've given her something that I experienced myself and so people often ask me if I'm have or with my kids series if I'm Vivi and I'm not they're both very different from me um but they have a little a little seed from a little point of my life and what the seed usually is is a feeling and that being tied to being autistic in some way um I did it again when I was writing another book. <laughs> you'll, you'll see, you'll see next year what I've done, and you'll be like, "Oh, <laughs> all your characters are autistic." Yeah. I, I wonder when you're creating these characters that have like a smidgen of you in, how do you stop them from being completely 100% you? Because mm. I, think, I mean, I think there's a, an assumption that 
particularly with debuts, that, that our main characters are us. Mm. Uh, and I mean, I don't know, how How do you, do, is it a conscious thing where you say, okay, well, I'm this, so my characters are going to be completely opposite. Like, how do you, <laughs> how do, you do it? Um, so for me, when I do character creation, I start with a Pinterest board. And the first thing I try and think of is like, um, what their colour is. This is a very weird way to describe it. But for me, every character has like a colour. Like, it's not like their aura, but it's like, have it's pink. Like she's, she, but specifically it's like rose gold and like sequinsy. Uh, for Kit, it's like emerald green, which is why her coat is that colour, and then browns, like dark, like dark wood. And I would make a board where it starts with colours and then it starts with like fun little inspirational quotes, they would say. If you type in things like inspirational quote aesthetic, Taylor Swift quote aesthetic, <laughs> you'll get all these like text posts, which can be quite useful for thinking about how they might say things or things they might believe as a motto like if they were the type of person to have you know a quote on a pillow like what quote would they have um and, I, and then I just keep going and then I'm like well what would they order at a restaurant what's their favorite food what what's their Starbucks order um and so in that way they really become very very different from me like um Vivi I would say is probably more different from me because she's a 12 year old girl uh, <laughs> I'm a 35 year old person um, but also she's much more um, introverted than I am I'll talk to anyone I'll talk to a wall I'll be very happy to um, I'm sure they've got a lot to say um, whereas I think have is much more compulsive than I am in her decisions like I, I make decisions quickly, but she just is like, yeah, whatever, let's go. Um, and just things like that, like that can be a good way to like build your character's mindset. Because I think things like food and colors and what they might wear and textures are quite like external, but it helps you kind of think about their internal rhythms. Like, why would they pick that? What draws them to that? What happened to them that means that that's their favorite food? Like, is this something their granny used to cook? Is this something they had as a child? And so it gets your like brain working. I think this partly comes from uh, using The Sims as a primary story <laughs> mechanism my entire life, because the thing you start with is how they look in their outfit. Yeah. And so I think ultimately I've brought that into my craft process um, because The Sims is just storytelling. It can be very strange storytelling, but that's ultimately what it is. I used to tell... The Sims brings out uh, everyone's like inner darkness or weirdness <laughs> or, oh my God, I love The Sims. I mean, I, I haven't played it for a while, but oh, I, I lost days, weeks, maybe years of my life playing that game. Yeah, same. I used to act out like lesbian melodramas essentially <laughs> and it's like oh and then now I wrote this like that's that's <laughs> why <laughs> but like I think that's where it starts for me I also have um a list of questions this is getting a bit more technical where it'll be like okay are they an introvert or an extrovert are they an optimist or a pessimist how do they respond to criticism what do they do when they're nervous and I've got a list of questions that I use on every book I've just found it on the internet if you google things like this like lots of wonderful writers have shared 
like character checklists, character questionnaires. Um, and so I will fill out those and I find those really helpful as well because it's like, well, um, have does not take criticism very well, but she will pretend she has, whereas Kit will probably take it on the nose unless she doesn't agree and then she'll argue about it for days. And so <laughs> um, it's things like that, thinking about who they are and what drives them there was a piece of advice given by V. Schwab, who is a writer who writes primarily fantasy, and they said, um, when you're creating a character, the three the three things that they do is they ask three questions, and one is, what does this character want? What will they do to get it? And what are they afraid of? And I think those are the three most powerful questions to ask your character and quite often the what will they do to get it is actually the plot of your book because so much of a book is a character going on some kind of mission whether it's that's the whole book or that's the b plot or whatever but it's what drives your character through the plot or drags them through the plot you know have the very active protagonist because she makes all these terrible decisions she runs through she's like sure let's do all these things whereas Vivi is the opposite Vivi wishes she was not full of magical powers I'll probably have to explain who Vivi is in a minute <laughs> but <laughs> she really gets dragged through the plot because she doesn't want any of this she wants she wants the opposite of what is happening and so those three questions can also be really powerful for character creation um and also yeah you mentioned playlists before I build playlists and not just songs that I have a, th a theme song for every book which I play at the start every time I'm writing to kind of be like okay we're on this book now let's go it's like the, when you're rolling the credits watching a tv show and you're like okay the theme song has happened it's time for the show mm -hmm. um but I think about songs that might relate to the characters and it might only be lines but um that really helps me get into their head as well. Like for Have, it was Making Bad Decisions by The Strokes. Like that was one of the first songs I heard and I was like, that is her <laughs> and that is this book. And so like, I find that that is really helpful as well to look at how other people, because songs are, are mini, they're short stories essentially, aren't they? And that's another way of looking at character and what is driving them and motivating them. So I'm quite a multi-sensory writer in that sense but that helps make them feel like a distinct and wholly separate person from you if that help if that makes sense I feel like you need to run a character creation class <laughs> I would 100% sign up for it because it just sounds amazing I want to become part of your magical character creating world um it just I would love that it would be so fun <laughs> it would just be like making collages yeah I mean it just sounds like all the best things like from school like you know when it was like cut up magazines and stick stuff down on a bit of paper that was my jam yeah. that was what I liked doing and obviously writing uh, <laughs> but yeah no it just all sounds good and it, and it is making me um think oh I need to do more of that kind of thing because it's fun and it is fun it yeah it does help because Although part of me hates those lists, only like it's a part of me that just goes, oh, but I do actually think they're very useful and <laughs> they do kind of force you to, if you haven't thought about things to do with your character, 
it does force you to make them a human rather than just a, a name on a, on a page because you're thinking, okay, uh, you know, even if you're not intending to, let's say, include their father in the story, it makes you think, well, why? Well, who is their father? Like, why aren't they in touch? Why aren't they involved in this plot? Where are they? What are they doing? And and stuff like that. So it is it is incredibly useful. So yeah, I'd I'd second the whole like you know get the get the character list out and give it a go. Um, I have to ask you about the very sexy sex scenes and all the <laughs> and slow burn and oh, it's just bliss reading that kind of thing. Um, how do you do it? I mean, give us give us your give us your top tips for chemistry and sexiness um so this kind of to start with it goes a little bit back to character creation because you want to think about with your love interests how do they complement each other but also how are they different and what do they have that is attractive from the other person and why is that attractive you know I think that like sometimes attraction is um completely like unfounded or like there's no reason for it you just like who you like but also I think sometimes we can admire characteristics in other people and that be part of it you know like have admires that Kit has her shit together and Kit admires that have just rolls along with things whereas you know Kit's had to be kind of um on the path and really constrained and really keeping her energy for the things she has to do and so you know have loosens her up and Kit makes have a little bit more of a grown up and so there's that sort of aspect in terms of like what their relationship would bring um but also just like pick face claims for characters who are people in real life that you think are hot because you have to write about them for a lot and so I've I've written a lot about imaginary Aubrey Plaza you know like Kit isn't directly Aubrey Plaza in my head anymore she's sort of molded into her own person partly because she's been drawn so many times that I kind of see her differently now um but that helps <laughs> just like go back to the Pinterest board make sure like make a list of all the people that you find hot that you would like to write a romance about that's a great start um I um try and think of uh what I love about cinema a lot of my writing is very driven by film and um so I I see it very cinematically in my head and hopefully that then trying to transfers onto the page but honestly like write, writing a sex scene is you've just got to go for it <laughs> but also I really recommend reading a lot of romance and read um all kinds because some romance is uh fade to black which is fine but I knew that kind of wasn't what I wanted to write I wanted to put a little bit of spice in there um because also my prerogative as a romance writer uh is to be like hey disabled people are sexy and have sex and that's kind of like the thesis statement of all my adult work um and so for me it's kind of essential to put a sex scene in because I want that to be seen because you don't really see much disabled sex in um literature or on a or on film that actually was a scene I was going to put in if they if they had sex again on page which I didn't have space to put in um where hips uh kits hips pop out and I was like how would they deal with that and just like 
you know, I, I personally love putting a little bit of silly, goofy moments in the sex scene if you can fit one in. But um, you just kind of have to throw yourself into it. Listen to all the like horny playlists on Spotify and just <laughs> be like, like, it's really embarrassing. There's no, <laughs> there's no way to say it that doesn't sound like. Um, no, I, enjoy, like... <laughs> I enjoy people blushing while they tell me how how they go about it. Um, right essentially write some fan fiction (laughs) about someone you think is really hot um but yeah and just like um I would say that being edited during a sex scene is um tricky because you're like "Mm, yes uh someone else has read this now and I have to confront that I remember Laura Kay tweeted that the worst editorial comment she got was it's not clear what she's licking which is what I always think about when I'm writing my sex scenes so I'm like this has to be extremely clear what is happening um especially because I always go back when the pronouns are the same as well you know that's always been the challenge yes so you have to use names more um but I think that helps as well because like they can talk to each other and you have to just think about your sentence rearrangement a bit more that's getting very technical um but I always think of um when was it it was like 2011 it used to be a research scuba diver which is a slightly different job from what I do now and I was in Manila and I had caught some kind of horrendous flu virus I was trapped in my hotel just like really ill so I decided to read 50 shades of gray and live tweeted it because I've been on Twitter since like 2009 I'm truly perennially online <laughs> and no 2008 even earlier and one of the things I remembered like I wasn't like totally dunking on it I was like oh this is fun or this bit is weird uh, but one of the things I remember was being like I don't know how many hands either of these people has because they are doing too many things at once and then there were some things that I was like oh that could read sexy if it didn't sound quite so much like he just spat wine in her mouth and so it's like I think reading sex that doesn't appeal to you also helps you think about how the reader might interpret what you've written because I think writing sex and romance um can even more get into that zone where it's like "Mm, this isn't really my bag which you always run up against with readers like you can never write to a reader's taste you can only really write to your own as a writer and a reader really um and so I think that helped as well being like one of my formative romance reading experiences was not understanding the sex scene in an erotica book which seemed like it was important like it was important and you know let's be real I had flu so it's quite possible I just had no reading comprehension either um but I think that is helpful to think about well I liked how this person wrote it I like how that person wrote it it also helps that in this book it's third person but close Mm. so I'm writing about two separate people but um the two romances I have next out next year are both first person and that was an entirely different experience because you're writing about how it feels for someone else and what they want and what they're asking for so that was very very different um so I would say as well like if you are someone who's thinking about writing romance and thinking about approaching sex scenes um 
those things can be useful to think about like where your comfort level as a writer and a reader is and also like where your comfort level inhabiting character is because if you don't want to write a first person sex scene that's legit but if you set the book as first person then you're in in that situation um so yeah that that's fun everyone will see all that next year <laughs> we're going to move away from sex and sex scenes now um, to, to your relief <laughs> the wrong time for me to take a drink <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna basically let you take a breath and explain your i mean we were sort of cheating earlier by calling you a debut because you <laughs> you've written non-fiction for children you've written um um about David Attenborough, you've um, edited an anthology um, of autistic writers, and you're also now writing children's fiction, as well yeah. as many other projects. So <laughs> please tell us how it all started for you, how you got an agent, how you got into this, and give us the whole shebang. <laughs> Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is going to be a bit of a speech. Um, basically, uh, I was working as a bookseller uh, at one point for years, and I started thinking that maybe actually the thing I would like to do uh, was write books I used to be as I mentioned before I used to be a scientist but I started getting progressively disabled enough that I couldn't get any of the work that I was trained for um, essentially I trained myself to be a field scientist and then developed a seizure disorder which meant I can't drive or dive which are two quite useful things when you're going out to the middle of nowhere looking at I don't know snails on a rock which is something I've done repeatedly um, and so I was really lucky that through the power of Twitter, I was connected to a lot of other writers and editors and publishing professionals. Um, and my friend Claire Bogan set up Three of Cups Press, which was a micro press we worked on together with a bunch of other people um, doing anthologies about different topics. And I thought I would really love to do something like that about autism. This was during the time when... Um, 
the good uh the good immigrant had come out and been a huge success quite rightly and there were lots of other anthologies coming out and I had just got my autism diagnosis and I was really frustrated with the offering of autism in fiction at that time you have to remember this is like 2015 2016 this is before we had Elle McNichol who is the light of my life this is before we had Talia Hibbert and the Brown Sisters books which have autistic characters in it as well and a lot of what I was reading because the way I kind of understand a topic is by reading up about it which is a very autistic behavior just I'll do in my own little research project um and I was reading a lot of stuff that was about us, not by us. And so, and I kept seeing a lot of like, well, autistic people can't do this. They can't write this or they can only write this. And I was like, well, uh, fuck yes. <laughs> I'm going to prove you wrong. And so I happened to tweet that like, oh, I just really wish there was a kind of autistic anthology um, out there. That would be cool. And Julia Kingsford, who set up the Goodlit Agency with Nikesh Shukla uh, and is his agent, uh, literally DM'd me like, you should do that. And I think that you're the right person to do it because I've been I've been teaching myself to write, been teaching myself to edit um, and had worked on, I think, two anthologies for Three of Cups by then. Um, and so she became my agent uh, to kind of get that book through the paperwork and bring it to life and that I'm so proud of that book um it's 18 autistic people and and me of course um exploring art and unintentionally exploring autism through every single piece I never sent the brief as it has to be about autism but all of them match all of them are um and so she was uh looking after me but um because she runs the agency she was like oh I I'm going to give you to this new agent, Abby Fellows, who just came in. And Abby and I met in 2019. And I basically said to her, hey, okay, this is what I want. Um, I think I'm very lucky that I had been around the publishing industry for kind of four years by that point, because I'd been a bookseller as well. And I'd been listening to a lot of how writers talked about their careers. V. Schwab, who I mentioned before, is who has talked a lot about... Um, the mix of write for hire and originals alongside each other to kind of build a backlist quicker and so I said to Abby that was what I was interested in I was interested in um I wanted to write Vivi Conway in the Sword of Legend which I basically gave her the bitch for in that meeting in September 2019 I hadn't written any fiction that was showable by this point so I've had a really weird relationship with getting an agent it meant that when I first showed her it in like the February of that the year after I was like, oh my God, I hope she likes it because I had no idea. She'd never read any of my fiction before. Luckily she did. <laughs> and um, so she went out and got me uh, the David Attenborough job. Um, she was who introduced me to B for Make Your Mind This Christmas. And obviously she took care of sending Vivi out into the world. Um, so I, yeah, I kind of came into the publishing industry sideways because also I've been... Uh, working as I call myself an editorial consultant because I don't think sensitivity reader really encompasses what I do but I do help uh, edit and consult on books that are about autism or have autistic main characters but also like things that are about disability in general or like advising on book projects or like talking to authors so it's like I kind of do quite a lot of different things 
And so that meant that I was bopping around the industry in like a couple of like a stack of different hats on top of my head, just like switching them out. Um, so, it, yeah, I've had kind of a weird sidestep into this industry, but I feel very lucky that um, I've now got to where I really wanted to be, which was to be a, a fiction writer um, to the point that next year I have three fiction books out, which is very silly, <laughs> but exciting. Um, but yeah, so it's been a bit of a, a bit of a weird one, <laughs> but a wonderful one. And yeah. now Abby's at um, DHH Literary Agency and I'm there with her because she's light of my life. <laughs> she keeps me sane and and she's so brilliant. Um, I really wouldn't be as prolific or successful if it wasn't for her guiding my career. So I'm very lucky. I'm really grateful to that you're so open and honest about your journey into publishing and kind of how it's all happened and the types of projects that you take on and... and um, you know that it's not been the straightforward route but that's fine and that's worked and it's brilliant because I think so many people think that there's only one route to get an agent or one route to get published and you know people work so hard on that route but actually mm. there are other ways and I think that if you're a creative person it is possible to find other opportunities just through your sheer creativity Um, I have to kind of get another nugget of advice from you because um we are in a, a debut group and out of everyone I'd say and I think everyone would agree with me that you are the most kind of pragmatic level-headed person so when everyone's freaking out over something or worried about something or thinking this is the worst thing ever my book's gonna die no one cares you're like wait let me just talk you through this this is normal <laughs> this is okay um and I think we're all incredibly I speak for everyone even though I'm sure they would agree with me but um we're incredibly lucky to have that um advice from you and that kind of calmness and um you're you're a, a wonderful person to go to for that kind of um you know pragmatic I'm gonna cry yeah. stop this it's true, it's true. <laughs> I'm always grateful for you to just be like guys stop freaking out over nothing and <laughs> calm down. and also when you're like this is normal this is fine like you know this is okay whatever whatever it is what would your advice be to anyone that's just about to I mean because in a few weeks time I'm going to be speaking to the 2024s the, oh the God, next yeah. cohort, um which feels, feels where is the time going but anyway what would your advice be to them about how to cope with publishing and all the weirdness and the ups and downs because I'm sure I mean I'm sure there's been things for you that have been challenging over the years mm. but what what would you say I, I think everyone I'm not going to say everyone needs to come to you but everyone needs, <laughs> needs um needs a you in their life <laughs> I've accidentally promised that I'm going to write some kind of how to survive debut year guide <laughs> uh so if I ever get around to that uh that all my thoughts will be in there um I would say so the first thing I would say is you need to create a mindset shift I think a lot of us come into this industry with you know our dreams in our hands we're like this is my book this is what I'm here for because I felt like that with Vivi you know Vivi's a very important story to me it's about an autistic girl dealing with recovering after she's been bullied and then all this Welsh myth 
chaos happens to her. Monsters. Sword in a lake. Great stuff. That was the story that I got into publishing to tell. Uh, and I'm really, really glad that I got to tell it. Um, and so I have a lot of squishy feelings about Vivi that I didn't necessarily have about um, Stim or David Attenborough because I was like, no, 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 these are my projects. I'm doing this. I'm going to do it. And so I think that helped me a little bit. But the thing that I always used to tell the people I worked with when I was doing an anthology is the most important thing to remember is that um, I, as your editor, I'm not your boss. I'm not going to get mad at you if you don't hand something in in time. I'm not going to get upset with you if you're struggling. Um, what I need from you is us to just be in communication and you to tell me what you need because it's my job to make your work the best it can be and it's my job to facilitate you and I think that it's really easy when you come into this industry to think of our editors as much as we like them as our bosses rather than our collaborators like their their whole thing is that they want the book and you to do well and so I think it's really important to be honest and open with them from the get-go same with your agent I think you can be more honest and open with your agent because they're entirely impartial their whole thing is supporting you um but I think recognizing that both your editor and your agent are collaborators in the project that is you and your books is really important um and things like if you know that deadline's never gonna happen if you know it's too much if you're worrying too much about this book if you're getting your in your head about the story the best thing you can do is talk to your colleagues because they're your colleagues they're there for you I think not everything like so you know sometimes you can work things out by talking to your writer friends or even better like I talked to my partner who probably knows the plot and everything about every single one of my books because we've talked it through. He has not read any of them, which my friends always are like, oh, you've not read them. I've read all of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, like recognize that there are different levels of people that you can go to for this kind of advice. You know, a lot of being a debut is low key terrifying because you don't know a lot. But the thing is, you're agent and your editor don't necessarily know that you don't know anything so I think it's really important to be like upfront. hey like I'm really naive about this process or can we set some expectations between us of what you need from me um that would probably be my first thing it's just like it's, it sounds like I'm being rude when I say be a professional about it, but that's kind of what I mean is like see everyone as your colleagues, see everyone as working together on the project of you. So that would be my first and major bit of advice, I think. Um, and my second one, my second bit, which is super important, is eyes on your own page at all times because... Um, so I'm a lead title for my children's book, but I'm a lead title in an indie publisher. So, you know, it's not in hardback. It's uh, There's no billboards everywhere. Uh, and I am a mid-list author, which means, you know, I don't get very much promotion. I don't go on tour for my adult romance. That's fine. Those are very different. And so it means that I have different experiences of both. Um, I'm lucky that I can have quite pragmatic conversations with my publicist to be like, what are the parameters we're working within so that I can 
best you know fulfill that um but I think it's so easy to be like especially when you're in a debut group to be like why have they got that why haven't I got that or should I be getting that should I not be doing this am I doing things wrong each publishing house has its own rules and processes which is very confusing they don't all do things the same way um and so it can be really useful to like ask how it works at the publishing house you end up with but also try and keep the blinders on because um it's really important to focus on what you want and also where you're going because the biggest thing about this career is that it's not the first book it's the future the first book is the like I would say one of the first steps but thinking about your career is thinking about long term is thinking about the next books it's thinking about how many other ideas you have in the bank it's thinking about where your agent's going to pitch you next whether you want to move publishing houses and so if you get so caught up in the first book and being like oh my god I'm not getting this oh my god I'm not doing this am I doing it wrong I think that that can be a hindrance for getting further ahead um I don't know. I'm I'm worried that my advice sounds like really brutal, <laughs> but <laughs> no. like it's it's coming from a place of like seeing so many debut authors kind of getting caught up on the same. It's thing. it's seeing it's seeing us all melt down every <laughs> three days over something. The other thing which you're always very good at is telling people to not go on Goodreads. Yeah, not reading your reviews. You know, never read a review. Oh, don't do it. Do not do it because like by the time your book comes out and is going to reviews, you're probably writing the next thing. If you read your reviews and you read the reviews of someone who didn't like it, like NetGalley is personally the worst one because you, I don't know if people know this, but if you get a book sent to you on NetGalley, you have to review it or it affects your ratio. And so it means that people who don't necessarily like the book and would have just DNF'd it quietly have to write a review. It's a downside of the platform. Do not go there if you are an author. It's not It's not for you. Um, I made the mistake of going there at one point because I was trying to link it to someone. And I read some stuff that um, it didn't knock me too bad because I was like, no, no, no. I could compartmentalize it. But at that point, I was writing the sequel to this. Mm. And I think that if I spent my time reading a lot of reviews, it could have really soured what I think is going to turn into a great book. At the moment, it needs a heavy restructure and, and an ending. I handed it in with no ending. <laughs> I was like, I run out of time. I'm really sorry. This is what will happen. Um, and I think that that's part of it as well you've got to believe in your own source a bit you got this far you're gonna have readers you just gotta keep going and like shut all the other stuff out you know that's all that criticism is wonderful and brilliant it's not for you it's not for you as the creator and I think that um you know it's why there have been over the years uh so many bad instances of authors getting upset in yeah. review spaces and you know I, also, I, I have quite a controversial opinion oh go for it i'm gonna share it now because this is my space and i'm gonna shock everyone i do not have a problem with people one starring review one star reviews or two star reviews because when i've seen a really shit film i i don't necessarily tweet about it but i might say 
you know what I saw that film the other day and it was absolute shit and the director or the writer or the editor or the sound mixer might see my tweet and they might get really upset mm. with it but at the end of the day we do it all the time with every single yeah. media with songs with tv shows with whatever why should it be any different for books it's not for us to read it's not for us yeah. to comment on other people's we write for readers right so if they don't enjoy it that's not that's nothing to do with us that's their opinion and I just don't unless it's personal obviously unless it's kind of an attack on you mm. I actually think fair enough you didn't like it tell me that you thought it was shit like fine but I'm not going to read it that's fine but it's not my place to read it it's your place to if you're a book reviewer and you didn't like it by all means give it a good you know thrashing fine yeah I think that's fine I'll tell you what, okay, I'll tell you one that I have read uh, because someone sent it to me because they were like, this is very funny. Um, it was a two-star review of Make You Mind This Christmas, but they had formatted it in the way of Ambrose's polls. So throughout the book, Ambrose, one of the side characters, does polls on Twitter, and now I would have written it as Instagram because yeah. Twitter is <laughs> falling apart of the knees. Um, and that are all like making fun of Ham and this reviewer had made fun of the book in the format of the poll and I was like well that's great because yeah, you didn't like great, it but yeah. you you yeah. still took something from it like yeah. good for you yeah. like I, I have no issue I mean yeah, yeah. I've, read, I've read a couple of bad reviews of my book and I don't read reviews at all anymore but um and of course you yeah, know they're upsetting but I don't begrudge the person from um leaving it I yeah. do begrudge one particular reviewer for copy and pasting their review on every single review site possible when it was a really quite a vicious review that's also their prerogative so I'm not you know I have no issue with it because actually back in the day when I didn't I wasn't published and I was just a reader I would be honest with my reviews I would be like didn't enjoy this thought the characters were flat blah 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 didn't think of the author and I actually think most book reviewers do not give one second thought to the author they're just reviewing the book they're just reviewing the story and have no problem with that at all but yeah no that's the controversial opinion so no I agree I think as long as they're not tagging you in it then that's fine like I think they deserve to have that space and also you know like um as someone who writes disabled characters on queer characters one of the things that happens a lot on the internet is people will argue about whether it's a good representation or not and you know people might not like how I've written an undiagnosed autistic woman as being chaos personified which is fair they might not like how I've described Kit's uh, experience being a disabled person trying to work in a corporate environment. That is fine. I respect that we all have different experiences. And I don't want to take away from a space where people feel like they can't talk about that. Mm. One of the things I think a lot about, actually, is like whenever a big movie comes out and people go on movie weekend, you'll get an absolute slew of reactions so like this weekend that we're talking spoiler alert it's november not actually december <laughs> but um songbirds of snakes and whatever the, the hunger games prequel oh, yeah. and the marvels came out this weekend and i had people who i know loved the books or didn't like the books or and loved the tv shows and the other marvel films say wow that was the best thing i've ever seen or wow that was fucking terrible and like just like the full spectrum of it mm. one after the other and it kind of reminded me like yeah like people have totally different reactions to media especially depending on what they want out of it you know if someone wants um 
really heavily emotional romance with a lot of deep drama they're not going to get that i make your mind this christmas because it's purposefully not that you know no one there is one coming out on it but in it but it's like the most quiet casual coming out you know no one's art gets ripped up like in the happiest season no fights start um and so that isn't necessarily the book that i'm offering i'm trying to offer uh, a very goofy silly romantic rom-com that feels like the christmas movies we watch every year you know i when I was writing it, I watched basically every Christmas movie Netflix has ever made. And I think you can feel that in the pages. And so that's fine. You know, if someone didn't want that, then they're not going to find it there. And they might write a review where they were like, this didn't quite hit the vibe that I personally wanted, which is fine. You know, like everyone reacts differently to stuff. So I don't begrudge people. What I always try and say to, and this is another bit of advice for debut writers, actually, um, your book is not for everyone, but it is for someone. And the rule of success that I live by, which I think is what keeps me quite level-headed in this industry, is that um, for me, a book is a success if a reader has told me it meant something to them. And I have been extremely privileged to have that for every single book, including my essay in Allies. I had um, an older lady, I think email me message me on Facebook she tracked me down on Facebook and sent me a message saying that she'd read this anthology that was for teenagers and read my piece and I was the first time she'd seen anyone talk about um, a seizure disorder in the way I did because it's the seizure disorder that I have is a kind of whole nervous system disorder it's an offshoot of having Ehlers-Danlos syndrome where it comes with all sorts of weird experiences that are kind of like epilepsy there's a lot of overlap um, and she wrote to me and was like, this has made a huge difference to me. And I've had people say they love her and they love Kit and they love Vivi. And, you know, that's, I'm like, one person, that's all it is. That's all we need, one person. And that has been a really good yardstick for me because I'm not looking for, like, starred reviews on Amazon or I'm not looking for, you know, um, recognition in awards I mean I'm not going to get recognition from awards for rom-com because no one treats romance with any respect <laughs> that's a whole different rant, oh, rant. Yeah. <laughs> I can feel it growing inside me um but I think that that helps like reframe it and remind you why you're doing this job you know you're, you're you want you do it because you want to tell stories but also you do it because you want readers to read the stories you you know I write the stories I do because I want readers to have a moment of comfort and maybe like with the Christmas romances it's very much like I want to write a book that feels safe like a safe space for people to read and you know there's no fucking diet culture in it <laughs> every time every time I read a Christmas book and it's got diet culture in it I'm just like no this isn't for me um and so Diet yeah January or uh, or like he's eaten too many potatoes I'm like this is the season where you just live off potatoes I have to say that's another thing and I did mention the food earlier but I will mention it again because I when I was a kid I was obsessed with writing about food and food would feature in everything I ever wrote because I just love food um <laughs> but your book is just chocker full of gorgeous food writing and it's there's no guilt or like you say diet culture or anything like that so if you're looking for a book that's just like indulgent in a really Christmassy <laughs> way then yeah it's just the perfect book and I and I I am planning on rereading it again this Christmas because it's just 
like I I am very I am a very cheesy Christmas person but I still sometimes find the Christmas movies a bit much it just have to be in the yeah. right mood but your book was like exactly ticked all the boxes you know so um if they they need to make a film of it I'm just putting it out there now um <laughs> we have been teasing your upcoming projects for so long but so um finally Lizzie can you can you share what's coming up for you what's coming out you don't have to give us dates but you know give give us the uh give us the goss on on what's coming and what you're working on next Yes, I've got three books out next year, which means I'm editing three books this winter. So if you happen to see me around London and I look extremely haggard, that's why. Um, So first in May, I have the second Vivi Conway book, which the title has not yet been announced, but will be probably by the time this episode comes out. But I won't just in case <laughs> uh, that's out in May and then Hits Different which is written with the wonderful Tasha Gori who is a deaf model and dancer we've written a swoony summer romance about a deaf dancer who get lands the job of her dreams uh, dancing in an international tour for an idol and she goes on a journey to learn how to love herself and fall in love it's in if because we were talking about tropes before we've got friends to lovers we've got the shit boyfriend <laughs> what else we've got we've got the great friend group it's actually quite a queer book even though it's an mf romance because almost every side character is gay um it's just great me and tasha had a hell like an amazing time coming up with the story and working on it together it's been a wonderful collaborative project and i'm really excited to have other people read it because I just handed it in for edits yesterday and had finished reading it and I was like oh, this is actually very good it's very funny so yeah so if you read Make Your Mind This Christmas this winter and you're like oh I would quite like some more of that please look at pre-ordering Hits Different by me Lizzie Hudson jones and Tasha Gurry. and then in autumn next year there will be the next Queer Christmas Romance which is a sequel to make you mind this Christmas. It is currently untitled and not yet available to pre-order because I've not come up with a title. <laughs> um, but if you follow me on any social media, I'm at Little Hucks anywhere. And if you hate social media, I do have a substack. If you search Lizzie Huxley Jones Substack, I think it's called News from Hucks. And I send one email like every two months, and it's mostly just to be like, hey, here's what I've eaten recently. Also, these are all the books that I have out and where I will be physically if you would like to come say hi um yeah I think that's it one two three yes three (laughs) um so yeah more news to come about the second queer Christmas romance um but yeah I'm excited about it I'm about to get editing on it and I'm very much looking forward to it you've absolutely amazed me you are like a machine but a very well-oiled brilliant machine Uh, i'm entirely powered by jelly beans like i I, you know when i'm having like a bad time working because i'll bleat that i've run out of uh, jelly beans i'll tweet it even bleat tweet a sadly tweet um i'm about to order some more jelly beans because i've run out once again um but yeah that and heated blankets that's the secret to success a good playlist (laughs) amazing oh well it's been so good to talk to you Lizzie I I feel like I've learned so much about um you know the way you've come 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 into publishing and 
character creation and everything and this is going to be a long episode but I think it's worth <laughs> it. I think it's definitely worth it um oh, thank and, you yeah I, I I think you should write the guide to being a debut and I think you should create a character course and yeah I think we want to <laughs> world needs to uh hear more from you thank you that's so kind of you thank and you thank so you so much, much for having me yeah. on thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today thank you that was Lizzie Huxley Jones talking about their festive rom-com Make You Mine This Christmas, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. <laughs>